Good morning. I want to welcome those of you that are visiting with us. We're happy to have you here at Riverstone Church. We believe the Bible is God's Word, and we encourage you to read along with us. So at this time, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 49. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We would be happy to share a Bible with you. You're welcome to keep the Bible. If you don't have one, please feel free to keep it and come back and read it with us. What you're going to find is that if you're open to the Bible, I, I meet people all the time that think they have read the Bible. I, I, I went to private school and I read the Bible. And it's fascinating when you really read the Bible with an open heart, how much the Lord wants to teach us. The Bible is like no other book. The Bible is alive and powerful and life-changing. So even if at this point you don't necessarily believe the Bible, I just encourage you to be open to listen to its message and allow God to speak to you and ask him, if this is the truth, Lord, then help me to respond appropriately. Have you ever read a good book and as you get near to the end, you're kind of not looking forward, not so much because you don't want to find out what happens, but because you're like, what am I going to do when this book's done, right? If you really are reading a, a book that you love, you, you can't wait till the next time when you can open it up again. Well, some of you like to read in bed. My wife loves to read in bed. Um, so I kind of feel that way. I feel like I've been hanging alongside of Joseph and Jacob and just spending time with them, and, and I know it's time to leave. I know it's time to move on from them, but what's nice is that we can always go back and, and pick up and continue to read the Bible. And it's, it's so encouraging, isn't it? Because for many of you, you've heard the story of Joseph before, but each time we read the word of God, the Bible is alive. And, it, and, and God says in his word that his word is like a fire that breaks or a hammer that breaks the rock. So a hard-hearted person, it can penetrate. But the Bible says these things have also been written for our encouragement and our comfort and our instruction these things happen as examples for us, the Bible says. The Bible says that God's word is, is profitable to teach us, to correct us. That's why some people don't want to sit under Bible preaching because it makes them uncomfortable and they don't want to change. And so Paul tells Timothy, preach the word and reprove, rebuke, exhort because in the last days, men will want teachers who only tickle their ears. They, they want to accumulate teachers who tell them what they want to hear. So I've been blessed and, and as you know, this whole series has been called God meant it for good and we're going to actually come to that verse today so let's pray and we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 49 father thank you for your word and I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us today as we grow together as a Christian church we know father that a church is built not by schemes or clever plans of men not by might nor by power but by your spirit as the Lord Jesus reveals himself through the gospel, and as the word of God builds us up and equips us and grows us into a flourishing church as we respond in repentance and faith and prayer and humility that you transform us. We're thankful for people that are coming to Christ and growing and the disciples that are being made, the children, just so thankful for all that you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are picking up today in Genesis 49. Now, I never realized this, but technically almost half the book of Genesis really revolves around Jacob. You pick up Jacob at around chapter 25, and inadvertently, even this last 13 chapters on the life of Joseph 
are, are overshadowed by, by Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. And so as we come to the end of the book, we're going to see Jacob and Joseph so deeply interwoven together. Last week we saw that Jacob made this prophetic announcement about what's going to happen to his 12 sons. But now it's time for him to die and be buried. Now something that was interesting to me as I was studying is, is, is you remember when he first found out that his son was still alive, having not seen him for many, many years, God appeared to him and he said, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will go down with you and Joseph will close your eyes. Now, closing your eyes was a metaphor that, you know, some people die and their eyes are still open and you gently pull them closed. And so he literally said to him, you're going to go down there and your son, your precious son Joseph, who you haven't seen for all these years, is actually going to be with you as you die. So as we wind down the book, I want you to think about this. Jacob has now been in Egypt for 17 years, reunited with his son, reunited with his brothers, having pronounced these blessings on him. Let's begin in chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what the father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessings appropriate to him. Then he charged them, and he said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. Now I want you to note that he doesn't say, hey man, I'm about to die, son. This phrase, gathered to my people, becomes an increasingly popular way in the Old Testament to describe what believers looked forward to when they died. In fact, if you jump down to the last verse, it says, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now I want to suggest to you that the Old Testament understanding of the afterlife was not as full or rich. We have the New Testament now. It was kind of like being in a, in a furnished room, but the lights weren't very bright, and so you had some shadows and you had some understanding. So I want to say this. The Old Testament saints knew three things. Number one, they knew that when they died, that that wasn't the end. To be gathered to your people, that somehow there was this place of, of comfort, this place where you were with other believers. Secondly, they knew that they were going to rise from the dead. Even Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and in my flesh I will see God. Later in the book of Daniel, Daniel says, in the last days, many who are asleep will rise from the ground. Now what's perplexing is it appears as though they weren't real clear on what happened between when you died and when you rose. And so frequently the Bible uses the phrase, you would fall asleep. And so, unfortunately, there are many Christians who have taken that idea and they think that that's still true today, that when you die as a Christian, your soul just sleeps in the grave until the resurrection. I want you to be clear on this. When you die, the Bible says you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. So the only thing that's sleeping is your body. So, so at this point, living down here with the Egyptians, now, you remember that the Egyptians, especially the pharaohs, when they were buried, right, they would build this big monument and put all their stuff in there because even they had some sense that there's going to be another life. Unfortunately, as we often say, you can't take it with you. So let's read what happens. He charges them and says, 
I want you to bury me in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan. Now he goes out of his way to make sure it's this particular, you know, don't get this mixed up on your GPS. This is not Yardley. This is Lower Makefield. I want you to know exactly where it is. It's, it's, it's the land which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Now don't miss this. And there I buried Leah. So you want to be buried with Leah? Wouldn't we have assumed you want to be buried with Rachel? Remember, he had two wives, and, and, and there was no question that Rachel was the wife that was dearest to his heart. Well, why would you want to be buried with Leah? Why not just say, hey, go back? Because this, this shows us that, that our commitment to God, our commitment to the truths of Scripture, even transcend our loyalty to our dearest affections on earth. And so he wanted to be with Abraham and Isaac because he had this anticipation that somehow there was a representation of what was to come, that God had promised them this land. Now, we learned from the New Testament that they realized that there was another city. They were looking for a city that has foundations. They were looking for some celestial kingdom that would come to earth. And so he's like, in faith, I want to be there. When the saints come marching in, I want to be in that number. Put me in that grave because I'm coming back. And so... He goes on to say, this is the field that, I, that he purchased. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, this is profound. Even at his death, right? It's almost as though the Holy Spirit is showing us that God is in control, but somehow that Jacob ha has a very composed sense of where he is in life and what's about to happen. Many of you know we just had a, a precious celebration of Ike's life, and a number of us sat with him, and to see the peace that he had, and he's like, I just want to go be with the Lord. And so picture this. Picture Jacob, who had just blessed his sons and worshiped at his bed. He now charges them to bury him in the land, and then he just pulls up into his bed and, and, and goes home. So look at verse 50. What, what precious emotion. Then Joseph fell on his father's face. He fell on his face. He wept over him and kissed him. And I can so identify with this because when my father died, I remember going to the hospital with him and, and he had already passed in our home. He fell asleep in his chair and he had a heart attack and he died. But I remember weeping over him and, and clinging to him. But over the years, I've watched many, many, many funerals, performed many, many, many funerals. And there's a different between people who are weeping over fear and hopelessness and people who are weeping with hope. And so this weeping was a deep emotion, but it wasn't a hopelessness. He hugged him, he kissed him, and many of you, this brings out precious memories of, of a loved one that, that you buried. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now that, that's kind of interesting because Jews didn't do that. They didn't embalm people. But, but here we see sort of Joseph acclimating himself to a pagan culture without compromising. And one of the questions that we're frequently asked as pastors is, is it okay to do cremation? Is it okay to do cremation? 
Well, the Bible doesn't really address that. And so, to a certain extent, it is a matter of conscience. John Piper has an interesting article on why he thinks it shouldn't be done. But, but I don't think, at the end of the day, that we should ever tell someone, the Bible says you can't or should cremate. I think it's a matter of your conscience. So, as Joseph acclimates to this tradition in Egypt, it says 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke, now notice here, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. Wait a minute, why didn't he just go walking right in and say, hey, Pharaoh, I'm your right-hand man. Get out of my way. I need to talk to Pharaoh. Why did he speak to the household of Pharaoh? We don't know. There may have been some cultural uncleanness for whatever reason. He wasn't able to go right into the presence of Pharaoh at this time, having touched the dead body. But for whatever reason, he sends a messenger to Pharaoh, and he says, if I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh and say, my father made me swear. Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I shall return. Now, there's a couple things here why this was a sort of a scary proposition. First of all, it's an insult, right? Like the Egyptians considered Egypt is the place to be. What? We're not good enough for you, right? But secondly, wait a minute. You want to leave Right? So how do I know you're coming back? So, so there, were, there was some, some backdrop to this that this had to be handled in a, in a delicate way. And so Pharaoh says, now, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now, interesting question would be, what if he said no? What if he said no? Remember, Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as a river of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So just keep that in the back of your mind. As you interact with unbelievers and you're trying to accomplish God's purposes, don't feel like, oh man, I can't get anywhere. They're not a believer. Everyone's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And, and it's not so much that we have to figure out a way to talk to them, but rather we talk to God and he moves their hearts. Verse seven, so Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and elders of the land of Egypt. I want you to think about this. All of the dignitaries, right? Why would these Egyptians be so concerned with some Hebrew of which they're like, they're shepherds, they're, they're, they're low lives. Well, this shows us the honor that they, they felt towards Joseph. Remember, they didn't feel resentful to Joseph now that Joseph pretty much owned them. They looked at Joseph as a savior, he saved us. They said that. You saved us. And so if Joseph is our savior, if his father dies, then we want to give him what would look to me like a royal. This is how they buried a pharaoh. This wasn't just, you know, throw me in the box and don't worry about it. This was a burial fitting for a king, of which Bruce Walkie suggests that this was a type that God intentionally was telling us that one day there will be a great king that will come from the line of Jacob. So let's look at this procession. It says, all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household, the only ones they left were their little ones, their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen, and I'll assume their mothers because the little ones would need nursing. 
There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, a very great company. Now that word great is an interesting word, the Hebrew word kabod. It's translated heavy, it's translated bitter, it's translated strong, it's even translated excellent. But here it's going to be used about five times in this chapter of the, of the procession, of the weeping, and so for whatever reason, God's telling us this is a big deal. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, we don't know exactly where this is. It's suggested that it was near, if you remember, Jericho, when, when Joshua later crossed into the land at Jericho, somewhere near Jericho, they lamented with a great sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now, we don't know why that, what's going on here, this seven-day ceremony here, because this isn't even at the burial, right? And so there's some mystery as to what's going on here, but understand that there's hundreds, probably thousands of people, and this was not in the wilderness where no one else lived. There was pagan Canaanites around, and they, they, they watch CNN, they have their drones flying over, they know what's going on, so this did not go unnoticed. The pagan Canaanites are watching. So in verse 11, we read, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous, there's that word again, this is a heavy mourning, this is, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians, and therefore it was named Abel Mizraim. Now, Mizraim means of Egypt, but Abel could actually mean morning or a brook or river so it's either the river of the egyptians or the morning of the egyptians and i wonder from door to door what the canaanites were talking about like whoa i don't know what's going on down there but this must have been who was that guy you know was that bob travis i mean this was an important person right <laughs> so there was a big big morning right now now think about this the pagans are watching and after he had buried his father Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. It's, it's worth noting that for believers, unbelievers are always watching us. They watch how we conduct our affairs. They don't always understand us, but they're watching us. And so that's important to remember that the Bible says we must give no offense for the gospel, that we provide things honest both in the sight of God and in the sight of men. And to recognize, and you'll hear me say this often, is that sometimes you're the only Bible that people start reading first. And so keep that in the back of your mind, that how you interact with your neighbors at the grocery store, with your coworkers, all of this is an opportunity to either point towards Christ or to push people away from Christ. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us? and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. Now, think about this. They've been 17 years with Joseph, right? And yet, they're still pricked with guilt, pricked with fear, and wondering if deep down, the only reason that Joseph hasn't opened up a can of whoop is because dad's still alive, right? Now, all of us have perhaps been in a relationship where after many years, when your spouse says, honey, do you love me? And you go, at this point, if you have to ask, right? In fact, you know that many of us as men would say, honey, 
you know I would die for you, right? How many you, you, wives, yeah, my husband said that because you should die for the church. So just say to your husband next time, you always say that, but you never do. But I want you to think about how Joseph felt like Joseph was extraordinarily gracious to them, loving towards them. He, he un, unrolled the carpet for them, and yet 17 years later, this wasn't Joseph's baggage. This was their baggage, and, and this is a great example of how we're all dysfunctional. We all have shaping influences from our past that cause us at times, or I shouldn't say cause us, but, but become the seedbed for Satan for us to stop trusting God and take matters into our own hands, okay? So let's be realistic. You need to go back and think through your past. You know, so if, if you're talking to somebody, they go, ah, I don't, you shouldn't even go there, right? So there's extremes. Of course our past has shaped us. Of course the way that we grew up and, and affirmations or corrections or whatever, our experiences have a profound influence on us. But at the end of the day, we have to be mindful that we should not allow our past to dictate our present behavior. In this case, they're going to revert to a sinful behavior because of their past. And this reminds me of what Scripture says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Christ. So these guys concoct a plan from their own understanding. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers. Now, I want you to think about this. We're left with this question. It doesn't actually say that Jacob never said this, right? Because some could argue, well, he, maybe he really said this. But the context is, out of fear, the text says, they sent this message. Hey, uh, Dad wanted us to tell you, um, after he dies, don't hurt us. So it very much looks like they're actually lying here, right? And sometimes we, we see ourselves here, like, why do I take matters in my own hands? Why do I think that I need to disobey God and do something clever and scheming as though, God doesn't have this. He needs my help. But I want you to look at the words that they use here. They didn't say, please forgive our poor judgment. You know, all the time we watch politicians and some of the terrible things that they do, and then their apologies are like, wait, what? That's all, that's all you're going to call it is an indiscretion? They use two extremely strong words. These are two of the strongest words for sin. I beg you forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. So these guys are owning up in their souls. Like, we get it. We didn't just, oh, sorry, Mac. We sin deeply against God and others. And that's something I want you to think about, that sometimes, though ultimately our sin is against God, right? Psalm 51, when David confesses his adultery, he says, against thee only I have sinned. But often our sin also is against individuals. And sometimes it requires us not only to ask God's forgiveness, but also the people we sinned against. It should not be incredibly threatening or weird or unusual to consider that it's part of life at times to apologize for sinning against someone. If that's like unheard of in your marriage, okay, something is dysfunctional. If you can never say to your spouse, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I sinned here. Would you forgive me? We should allow one another a culture within the Christian faith to go, that's normal. 
And so as these guys owned up their sin, remember that in the book of Acts it says, Paul always tried to keep his conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. So if you've done something very grievous and hurtful and painful to someone, it's not enough to just say, oh, God, I'm sorry. Sometimes we need to go to them and say, hey, listen, would you forgive me for my sin? Now, look at Joseph's response. They're not even telling him personally. They send a messenger, and Joseph begins to weep. He weeps that after 17 years, my brothers would send a messenger and go, please don't kill us now that dad's dead. We think maybe he was the only buffer. Don't open up a can on us, please. Why is Joseph weeping? I don't know, but I'm assuming that perhaps it was, he was moved with great love for them, moved with grief at their unbelief. Like, do you not yet trust that I care about you, I love you, that I have good intentions for you? I wonder if this doesn't sort of foreshadow for us the times when, when we disbelieve the Lord. He doesn't look down and go, what's wrong with you? but rather we see this pattern in the Gospels when, when we disbelieve the Lord, when we begin to question his love, when we begin to wonder if he really does care, that it doesn't cause him a, a sense of sadness and grief. Have I been with you so long? Are you not learning to trust me? Like when, when, when the disciples are sinking in the boat and, and they wake him up in a panic and he goes, why are you so afraid? Why do you have such little faith? And I see myself going, yeah, I, I understand this. That sometimes when, when I don't trust the Lord, it must, it must grieve him. Then his brothers came in and fell down before him. So they almost had this stage. Send a messenger in, you know, loosen him up with a couple blows, and then we'll come in. And literally in Hebrew, it's they threw themselves down before him, right? Now the irony is, we're at the end of the book here, right? Remember there early interactions with Joseph, hey, I had a dream that you guys are going to bow down to me, right? And they're like, why, you little jerk, you wait, we'll get you. Now they're, they're not, they already did the bowing part, now they're throwing themselves down before him. And he says, and they say, behold, we're your servants. But Joseph says, hey man, you're confusing things here. I'm not God. You're, you're pleading in the wrong court. This is a beautiful passage. Look what he says. Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? See, they're begging for his forgiveness. And I want you to understand somebody, something. When you forgive someone, that does not mean God forgives them. I think sometimes that's why Christians are afraid to forgive someone. Well, if I forgive them, listen, when you extend forgiveness to someone, whether they deserve it or not, the Bible doesn't say only forgive them if they deserve it. You're simply saying, I'm not God. And so the reason God asks us to forgive people is because he forgave us. Not because by me saying, hey, you abused me, I forgive you, therefore God forgives you, right? So I think what he's teaching us here is that God is the one to whom people answer. So when people have hurt us, if you hold on to that bitterness, if you hold on to that resentment, you are opening up your own life for Satan to attack you. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a place. Hebrews 12 says, don't let a root of bitterness. Yeah, but they don't deserve it. They, listen, the Bible says, 
Be kind and tenderhearted. Forgive them because God in Christ has forgiven you. So look away to Calvary and say, Father, it's really hard for me to forgive them. They've hurt me. But some of them may have to experience God's judgment if they don't repent. Now, you don't have to pray for their destruction, but remember the Bible says, don't take your own revenge. Leave room for God. And so here Joseph's saying, look, it's, it's kind of like people say they'll curse in front of you as a Christian. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, sorry about that. As though, as though my ears are the judge, right? I go, listen, you know, I've heard that before. Don't worry about that. You don't need to be worried about what I think, but I would encourage you to take it up a level. That's where you ought to be thinking. But then look what he says here. As for you, you meant evil against me. In other words, he's not letting them on the hook off the hook, you're not going, hey, you know, come on, you didn't know what you're doing. No, he says, you knew exactly what you're doing. You had evil intentions. You hurt me and you meant to do so. But God meant it for good. It's as though he's telling us God has a plan within a plan. One commentator, Brueggemann, said this. These guys could not see in the midst of their scheme was another plan about which none of them knew. A plan hidden from them, but sure for its work. Look, how, how was Joseph able to understand this profound biblical truth that though they meant to harm him, that God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive? Boy, that should be life-changing. That should be mind-altering. That should be profoundly etched in my soul for the rest of my Christian experience that no matter what happens to me, no matter who is trying to hurt me or harm me, that God has a secret plan and that he's intentionally using these things. That's why we call this series God Meant It for Good. Now, I get this. Some of you are going... Pastor, that doesn't comfort me. I know the Bible says God works all things together for good, but I don't see it. See, we have to trust God that when I can't see his hand, that I trust his heart. And right now, some of you are in the thick of it, and you're going, if this is good, man, I'd hate to see if God meant bad for me. When Jesus washed Peter's feet, Peter's like, stop it, you're not doing it. And he said, what I do, I'll take this to note, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. And some of you are in the midst of, of the storm. You're in pain. You're in crisis. You, you, you're, you're, you're laden with regrets and grief, and, and you're wondering, what is going on? May the Holy Spirit take this verse and bring great comfort to you. God is working it together for good. God is using this in my life. And I recognize this. This is incredibly painful because let's take, let's take probably one of the most painful things that could ever happen, to be abused as a child. How on earth could God allow children to be abused? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to God. God does not come down and say, I was thinking about doing something. Do you guys, are you guys good with this? And so what we learn from Scripture is God doesn't cause these things. He didn't say, you meant it for evil, and God did it, right? So somehow there's this mystery in Scripture that God didn't cause us to be abused. God didn't cause us. 
He didn't make a person harm us, but somehow in his sovereign purposes, it was part of his plan. And yes, he could have prevented it. Well, why didn't he? The Bible says, now we see in a glass darkly. And yet I hope that we can trust God to say, Lord, in the midst of my pain, I may never fully understand why you've let me go through these things, but I trust that you have this, that you are in control, and that somehow there's a purpose behind it. And many times that purpose is not just for us, but notice he says, to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It's for others. Your pain may be for the prosperity and blessing of others at some time. You say, could you give me an example of that? Yeah, there's one right behind me. You see, the cross of Calvary, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was delivered up by the hands of godless men by the predetermined plan and purpose of God. The psalmist actually said this, God uses the wrath of man to praise him. The most hideous, horrible thing that ever happened on planet Earth is that Satan and evil people crucified the Lord of glory. But somehow, God said, that was my predetermined plan. And though it was horrible and hideous for Christ, it was purposeful and planned for us. As he endured the cross for the joy set before him, he endured it for us. And so it gives me a framework to say, all right, so God's not sleeping on the job. God doesn't hate me. God hasn't left me. All of these things are purposeful. So Joseph says, so don't be afraid. I'll provide for you. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, as the book closes, Joseph's going to go through the same thing Jacob went through. I want to read you Hebrews 11 as, as we come to this verse, and then we'll talk about some applications. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, verse 22, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he gave them instructions about his bones. He spoke about the exodus? Joseph knew that 400 years from now, Moses is going to take him on an exodus? Yes and no. The word exodus literally means a departure. But let's look at this and, and, and kind of figure out, this is what it means to live by faith. I don't have all the answers, but I have God's promises. And I am told to lay hold of these promises to cling to the promises of God, to believe that if God said it, come hell or high water, all I need to do is steer my compass towards the cross and follow by faith, knowing that it's not this life, but it's the life to come. But look what Joseph does in verse 22. He says, now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Which, by the way, this is way less than Isaac or Abraham or Jacob. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Why is that in there? Well, there is a teaching in Scripture that it is a joy and a, and, and a sign of blessing to be able to see your grandchildren. That's in Psalm 127. It's also in Proverbs 17. It says the glory of, of young men is their fathers and the, or the, the crown of grandfathers is their grandchildren. So he got blessed to see the third generation. And the sons of Machir 
were the most prominent of the sons of Manasseh. And it appears that Joseph did the same thing that Jacob did with his grandkids. He adopted some of them. Because notice it says, some of these sons of Manasseh were born on Joseph's knees. And we remember that was a symbol that they used for an adoption. But look at Joseph's faith. He said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he performed on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God, now don't miss this, underline this phrase, God will surely take care of you. That Hebrew word is packed. It means to visit. It's not just like he'll just kind of, he'll make sure, you know, you don't get too many boo-boos. He will visit you. And you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in, now this word coffin, it's really interesting. The word here translated coffin is the same word that's used to translate the box, the ark, that Moses later put the Ten Commandments in. So I want you to take a trip with me back to the Exodus, right? Moses and, and the million Israelites now that are in the Exodus, Moses has two boxes, right? Whenever they got off their, their, their horse and buggy and, and they pulled down off the buckboard, Pompey with John Wayne, he had two boxes, two trunks. One box had the Ten Commandments. The other box, same word, had Joseph's bones. And even the Jews had tradition about this. This is one of the things they said. When your children ask you, what are these two boxes? They said, the dead man in that box, Joseph, fulfilled the commandments which are in that box. Final answer? Survey says, eh. the dead man in that box did not fulfill the commandments in this box. So, right idea, wrong answer. The dead man who was put in the ground for three days, he fulfilled the commandments. The Bible says he lived in obedience to the law that he might absorb the curse on the law. And so how sad it is that they're preoccupied with the bones of Joseph instead of the risen body of Jesus, the Savior who came first and foremost for them. This is a wonderful, precious story. And as we close, I want you to think about a couple things. As you go home, never forget this, that difficulties for the Christian, though they are painful, they are purposeful. And so write this down in your soul. You might not get it, but God's got it. You might not get it, but God's got it. So I say, okay, Lord, as I move forward, you didn't promise me all ease and comfort, but everything's purposeful. You got this, okay? But then I, then I look and I say, okay, well, I'm not worried about having my bones, you know, buried and worried. Yeah, but you know what? In the same way as they looked forward, the Bible says all of these Old Testament saints died in faith, but they didn't receive the fullness of the promise because they had to wait for us. And ultimately, it's not about a resurrection and a little piece of real estate over in the Holy Land. It's about the resurrection of the dead that we're looking forward to as Christians. And by faith, then, we recognize that when we die, we're just gathered to be with Jesus, waiting 
for this great resurrection. Sometimes when people speak of a person, they die, they go, oh, now they're glorified. Now they got it all. No, they're not. When a person dies, that's not the end. They're in the intermediate state. If they're a Christian, their souls are in heaven. Yeah, they're happy. Yeah, they're blessed. Yeah, they're at peace. Yeah, they have joy. But they're not going, this is it. In the book of Revelation, even the souls of those who had been headed said, how long, O Lord? You see, the ultimate is when we're all raised from the dead and, and we are on earth with Jesus forever. So whoever told you that you're going to float around, can't wait to go to heaven and float around and play harps, that's just temporary. You're going to have a new body with new bones and we're going to eat and drink and we're going to serve the Lord Jesus and we're going to see him every day and we're going to rejoice and we're going to love him and we're all going to get along. But the sad thing is that some of you may not be there. You say, all? Well, all who come to Jesus by faith. And just as this passage shows us at the end that they, they, they saw a son of Jacob, we know the real son of Jacob that will rule is the king. And you know what struck me as I thought about that when Walkie says, hey, maybe this is a picture of the coming Lord Jesus. Did you know that the book of Zechariah says this? That in the last days, before the Lord Jesus returns, you can read this in Zechariah chapter 11. It says, God will pour out his spirit on the house of Israel and they will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn for him. They will bitterly mourn as for an only child. Can you imagine that? How many Jews do you know that trust and love the Lord Jesus? Not many. But there will come a day in the last days where they will in mass turn and mourn for him. But you know what that excites me about? Is God's not just dealing with Jews. He's calling Gentiles all over the world to Christ. And I pray with all my heart that God will pour out that same spirit upon America and upon the churches that we might see hundreds of people in mass who hear about Christ. Now, not in mass as in church, in, in multitude who will suddenly be stricken with the truth about who Jesus is and they will come streaming to him in repentance and faith. And the Bible says in that day there will be a great fountain opened, a fountain for cleansing. And we come and we sing together. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that blood. We teach our children deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. But I want you to think about this. Does this bloody cross mean anything to you? When you think about the cross and the blood of Jesus, is that weird or is that wonderful? Because the Bible says the preaching of the cross is to the world foolishness. But to us who are being saved, the blood of Jesus and the cross is the power of God to salvation. That's the heart and soul of our Christian faith, our crucified Savior. And if in any way you or I have an interest in the Savior's blood, Charles Wesley was right on when he said it this way, and can it be that I should have an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But all around us, we have friends and family and loved ones who are held in Satan's bondage, in darkness. They don't get it. 
And if you're a Christian with Wesley, this is my heart and soul. I love this line. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. I didn't get the cross, but your eye diffused a quickening ray and I woke the dungeon flame with light. I saw it. I get it. And my chains fell off and my heart was free. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? God's calling us to live a life of obedience, a cross-centered, Christ-centered life of faith, a life of family, a life of service to Christ. But may you never forget, may I never forget, may we prayerfully remind one another, no matter what happens in our lives, I might not get it, but God's got it. And it's all about Jesus. And so I invite you, if you've never come to him, to flee to him today and say, Lord, I want to be saved. But if you're a Christian, may this awaken and encourage you to continue your life of faith and your life of obedience and your life of repentance as we all exhort one another on this pilgrim's pathway until that day peter says as long as you practice these things there will be an abundant entrance waiting for you into the kingdom of our lord and savior jesus christ come quickly lord jesus amen amen, amen. let's pray father thank you so much that your word is alive and with the eyes of faith we can look beyond the troubles of this world the anxieties, our concern with things that are not really all that important, and lift up our eyes to the hills from whence come our help, and remember Calvary's cross and the blood of Jesus, and no more condemnation. And we long for that day when all of our sorrows will be left behind. But I thank you that you redeem all of our pain, even our own sins, Lord. You wash them away. And you can cause even our mistakes to somehow work together for good. So for that, we love and worship the Lord Jesus. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will cause a revival in our hearts and in our family and in this church and in America. May you awaken more and more Christians. And may we be Christ-centered, Bible-soaked, prayer-determined, spirit-led until the Lord Jesus returns. We even thank you for all of our pain, Lord, for you told us to rejoice in everything, knowing that you meant it for good. For those who need to forgive someone that hurt them, may they lay that down today. For those who need to repent and apologize, may they have the courage to do so. For those who have never come to Jesus, may today be the day when they flee to him and are washed in his precious blood. Thank you for your sovereign grace that opened our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.